G'day, welcome along to another sermon from Good News Christian Church in Howrah, Tasmania, Australia. I'm Bernard Kane, I'm the pastor. Get in touch sometime at goodnewschristianchurch.org or why not come by one Sunday morning. For now, here's the sermon. Well, please pray with me. Father, as we return to the letter to the Galatians, Paul's letter to the Galatians, which is uh, long and technical in some respects, uh, we're reminded of the gap between us and the New Testament setting. Uh, Some of its concerns seem a little alien, and yet, Father, we know that Paul, a man who'd encountered Jesus, wrote to a bunch of Christians, people who trusted in the Lord Jesus And we know that not that much has changed in human nature between then and now. So, Father God, we pray, would you use these ancient words as your word to us today to speak for our instruction, uh, not just a cerebral instruction, but an instruction for life. May we learn how to live for Jesus, all the more for having spent time under your word today. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I came across this uh, little quote recently, actually from a marriage book, uh, but it stood out to me. I thought it was excellent, and I think it might be a helpful way in for us today. Here it is. To be loved but not known, okay, loved but not known, is comforting but superficial. To be known but not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved, it is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our own self-righteousness and fortifies us for any difficulty that life can throw at us. To be fully known and truly loved. It's quite a picture, isn't it? Um, Our passage today It extends this hope to us, which I just think is absolutely beautiful. Uh, It talks about history, in a sense, coming to a head, coming to a point of crisis with the arrival of Jesus. And I'm going to start at this pointy end of the passage. It's there in chapter 4, from verses 4 to 7. I wonder if you'd read it with me. Do you see, um, here is the hope, and and, and history is just sort of bearing down on this point, chapter 4, verse 4, but when the time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because your sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And since you're a son, God has made you also an heir. So here's where I want to begin. On what grounds, Christian? On what grounds in your heart of hearts can you look on God? Can you call on God? Can you speak to God, cry out to God as Abba, Father? Whatever your experience of a human father has been, On what grounds, Christian, can you call out, can you cry out in your heart of hearts, Abba, Father, let me make it pointier still, on what grounds can you call out, can you speak to God, can you call on God as your dad? 
Now, I know that there's a danger here of being irreverent with God and being altogether far too matesy, but that is the language that this passage is using. Let me, I'm quoting here, Abba, okay, that term there, verse 6, you can see it for yourself, Abba is an Aramaic affectionate diminutive for father used in the intimacy of the family circle. I know that's a mouthful, but what is the affectionate diminutive used for father in the intimacy of your family circle? Do you see? Because by that spirit, you can call out Abba, Dad, Father, whatever your experience of a human father has been. So let me ask you, on what grounds, Christian, do you call on God as your father? On what grounds? How sure? On what basis can you call out to heaven, cry out to heaven in the privacy of your week? Call on this this dad, this father, the one who knows you and loves you and will forevermore. On what grounds in your heart of hearts can you do that? And I mean that when you are feeling low, when you've had a real dip or perhaps a real slump for a very long time, even then, on what basis? When you've just stuffed up and it still feels too fresh, when you're angry or disappointed or life has punched you in the guts, angry perhaps even at God... When you're friendless, sometimes it feels that way, when you're frantic and decisions, life just seems, decisions and change just seem to be coming at you thick and fast. When you're no longer proud of yourself and all that you've done, perhaps when everyone else seems to be just having such a better time of it than you are. How do you know that you belong with God? On what grounds, Christian? rests your claim to a place with God where you are known, where you are loved, where you are forever secure in His arms, where you can call out to Him as your dad. Here's the thing, today's passage, Galatians chapter 3 and into chapter 4, presents us with a rival, one rival, one false path, one bankrupt alternative to the Christian gospel when it comes to your confidence before God. Are you ready? Do you know what it is? It's the Old Testament law. The Old Testament law that we have in our Bibles that is part of the Word of God to us today, it comes as this rival, this false path, this bankrupt alternative to the Christian gospel when it comes to your confidence to cry out to God. And we have this fairly long and fairly technical kind of passage um, in front of us and I'd just like to dive straight in and I'd like you to, here's what we're going to do, we're going to start at the start of chapter 3 and I want you to read along with me, would you please just read between the lines as it were, uh, to figure out who are Paul's opponents, right, he's writing to these churches that he loves but who are the opponents, who is causing the ruckus there in Galatia? Uh, what, what, what is their caper? Read with me from chapter 3, verse 1. I think this will help frame the whole of the passage for us. Chapter 3, verse 1, you foolish Galatians, says Paul, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I'd like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing, if it really was for nothing? Does God give you His Spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law? 
or because you believe what you heard. Here's where we're going to begin. Whether you're a Christian or not, would you please weigh this question with me today? What is the significance of God's Old Testament law for the modern day Christian or for the modern day anyone? What is the significance of God's Old Testament law for the modern day person? You see, in Galatia, in these churches, uh, Galatia's this whole region, it's got many significant cities in there and Paul had started, he had planted, he had nurtured and now he's written back to these churches uh, through the cities in Galatia. You can read about him starting those churches in the book of Acts. And the key issue seems to be this, did you guys get God by observing the law? And of course, he means the Old Testament law, he's not interested in the law of the land, the Roman law of the time. Did you guys get God by observing the Old Testament law? Or by believing in Jesus? And bring that forward to our day, what significance has God's Old Testament law got for modern day Christians? We're only going to be able to answer part of that. Uh, question today. Can I just say, I think we still struggle with it in different ways. I think we still struggle with this question. It comes up in a few different ways. It's, it's either, it can come up in that battle, you know, the one between, uh, you might say, very strict, uh, very upright, negatively, you might say, very uptight Christians and the morally lax Christians, on the other hand. It can come up there, can't it? What's the place of God's law in your life? Come on. Or it crops up um, as a dismissive swipe. We see this as well, don't we? We see it even on the television. Uh, look at those bizarre laws that are in your Bible. In, do you know, have you heard it now? Look at those bizarre laws about seafood or about homosexuality or about Sabbath keeping or stoning or sex outside marriage or sewing or stealing or bacon. And our hearts are really with the bacon. And we Christians find it hard to know what to do with some of those arguments and our beloved non-believing friends find it very hard to take them seriously at all, do you see? I think it's still a live question is just what I'm saying here. What significance has God's Old Testament law got for modern day Christians? Well, Paul's solution is, and we're straight into the passage now, Paul's solution is to understand the law, you've got to step back, you've got to go even further back in time, you've got to understand it in context. If you want to understand the law, he says, you've got to go a lot further back than just Moses. Moses, remember Moses and Egypt and Sinai and the giving of the law and all that sort of stuff. So, point number two, God's prior promise. Take a look with me from verse six. Verse six. Here we go. Consider Abraham. Do you know Abraham? We read about him just a moment ago. Abraham's way before Moses, way before the Ten Commandments. Okay, consider Abraham, verse 6, he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, the Gentiles are just the even the non-Jewish people, you know, the rest of the world, the Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the Gospel in advance to Abraham, all nations will be blessed through you. So, those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. The upshot's there in that last verse, isn't it? Just that last one, verse 9 there, Galatians, your claim on being Abraham's children, 
your claim on standing in the line of all of God's promises that he promised right down history at various times. Your claim on being on getting all of the good stuff that God has in store, the law doesn't even come into that. Verse 9, those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. It's like it's his characteristic thing. He's the faith man. Moving on, let me highlight the contrast for you, says Paul. Uh, just in case you missed it, what do you do with a promise, O Galatians? You believe a promise, that's what you do with a promise, you have faith in the promise giver, you believe a promise, but what do you do with the law, O Galatians? So here's the contrast, point number three, you believe a promise but you do a law, verse 10, stick with me, all who rely on observing the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone who doesn't continue to do everything written in the book of the law, Clearly no one is justified by, before God, sorry, clearly no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. The law isn't based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. Now, brothers and sisters, forgive me a moment uh, if I come across patronising in asking this question, but I'll ask it anyway because I really want us to to grapple with this this, uh, paragraph. Is Paul optimistic that anyone, anywhere, ever has obeyed the law? Is Paul optimistic that anyone, anywhere, ever has actually done the law. If the law is about doing, has anyone done it? See, the the law is about doing, but none of us have. Uh, And he's speaking there as a Jew. None of the Jews made it. As bleak as it sounds, verse 10, cursed is everyone, verse 10, cursed is everyone who doesn't continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Verse 11, clearly no one is justified before God by the law. I do think we've got to feel that, that even in the nation of Israel, even with the law of God, for hundreds and hundreds of years, for generation after generation, no one, and cursed, that this is the language, not a single soul on the planet, not one human being could be known and loved by God in heaven if it was left to the law, not one. That is heavy, isn't it? That is seriously heavy. Well, almost no one, actually, point four, because yes, Christ was cursed. He did suffer the curse of death under the lawful judgment of God. But verse 13, read with me there, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. In other words, a reference to Jesus' crucifixion. Look at him there. He died under the curse of God. That's what he's getting at. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus. So that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Galatians, no one is justified before God by the law. Do you get that? No one is justified, cursed, yes. No one is justified before God by the law, but that curse is done with, thanks to Jesus. 
So all that's left, Christian, is for you to answer me this. With the law out of the way and the curse out of the way, how are you, Christian? How are you going to receive God's promised Holy Spirit? How are you going to get his blessings? How do you stake your place among the people of God, the folds of his people, such that you're able to call on him as your God and Father? Where do you get, how do you have the audacity to do that? He redeemed us in order, verse 14, that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. Point number five, hang on a sec, why do we even have the law then? What's the deal with the law? Now, to illustrate this point, okay, we've, we've, um, we've ploughed our way through some pretty technical stuff, right? So, what I want to do is just take us out of that for a moment uh, into a very different time and place. Have you heard of the first brownies of Chifu? The first brownies of Chifu, I'm getting a lot of sort of, what? Seriously, what are you even talking? I don't even know what those words mean. Um, so, the Chifu boarding school was set up in northern China by the missionary James Hudson Taylor in the 1880s, uh, the Chifu boarding school. And being a missionary school, it had lots and lots of Western things about it. Well, not to mention Western children. Um, <laughs> it was a missionary school, so for the missionaries' uh, children. Uh, but lots of other things as well, lots of Western traditions. And so they had a little brownie brigade. Uh, for the schoolgirls that went along there, you know, brownies, like little Girl Scouts, junior Girl Scouts with their little brown uniforms and whatever, some of you probably were brownies, weren't you? Anyway, skip forward to, to 1938. Okay, so the school was there. Skip forward to 1938, so before the Second World War. Uh, but of course, Japan and China, quite apart from what was going on in Europe, they had their own issues. So Japan, by that time, had invaded China. Japan had invaded China, including the area where Chifu, well, including Chifu, where the boarding school was. Now, that was fine for a while, fine in the sense that the boarding school just kept on going, uh, although it was, you know, now the property of the Emperor of Japan, thanks very much, but it just kept on going. But the turning point, of course, was when Japan attacked Pearl Harbour, entered the war, and so what you've got is all these little British and American kids, largely, in this school, well, you can't just have them waltzing around when you're at war with the Allies, can you? And so they did what you probably expect that the Japanese uh, would do in that situation. They marched them off, the entire school community as one, into concentration camps. Well, actually, they moved them kind of as one. Uh, and they ended up in the Weishan concentration camp. And it was awful. I'm not going to sugarcoat that. It was terrible. But here is what makes this a happy story. See, the adults, the, the brownie leaders of this boarding school, they imposed brownie law on these girls and, in a sense, they gave the girls their childhood back, even in the midst of this concentration camp. They imposed brownie law on these girls with brownie songs and brownie rules and brownie ethos and brownie culture until they were liberated in 1945 by the British paratroopers. So they had their brownie songs, for instance. Mary Previty was one of these little brownies uh, and she remembered, uh, I'll, I'll quote what she said, she remembers that it started on their very first day in Weishan. She said, um, for example, one of the things that we sang when the Japanese were marching us into the concentration camp was the first verse of Psalm 46. God is our refuge, our refuge and our strength. And on it goes, in trouble we will not be afraid. All these words, she said, just sung into our hearts. 
that sticks. It's like you've got a groove sticking into a gramophone record. I am safe, I am safe, I am safe. That was just profound, she said. So the leaders, they gave these girls their childhood back in the midst of this awful situation. Uh, One researcher on this uh, summed it up like this. She said, it made a difference to all the adults in this camp and kept them going. The whole atmosphere was better because they had this very strong promise that they wouldn't stop smiling. Here are the brownie rules for you. They wouldn't stop smiling. They wouldn't give up. They would carry on singing songs. They would insist on everybody washing. They were all told it doesn't matter how disgusting the food is. We still want good table manners. It doesn't matter how hungry you are. You're not going to steal. You're still going to do a good deed every day and help other people. Now, here's the parallel. When Wei Shan was liberated by those British paratroopers in, late in 1945, Brownie law was over. That period was, was over. And, and I think Paul's lesson is something of a parallel for us. God's law was for a specific time, place, people and purpose. But that time has passed. Just back to the brownies for a moment. I'm not saying that that there weren't moral lessons that stood these young women in good stead for adulthood. Lessons that they hung on to, lessons that they lived out into their adulthood, by no means. But the laws, as laws, fell away for them when they were liberated. They would live their adult lives apart from and without the supervision of and no longer under those rules that had served their purpose. So, first off, look at how Paul... Let's come back to the passage now, back to Galatians, see if this checks out. Let's have a look at how Paul talks about Israel. Firstly, at the start of chapter 4, like a child while under the law that uh, grows into adulthood out from under the law uh, when, uh, when uh, Jesus comes. So, chapter 4, verse 1. What I'm saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he's no longer different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. He's subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also when we were children, speaking of the nation of Israel as a whole, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. And on it goes. Do you see the then but now? Just beginning, we're going to see it a little bit more clearly from chapter 3 in just a second. The law was for a people in a time, in a place, for a purpose. Now, this one's a longer reading, and the contrast here is between promise and law. So, from chapter 3, verse 15, would you please read along with me there? The promises are very much forever and for everyone, but not so the law. Verse 15. Brothers, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that's been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture doesn't say into seeds, meaning many people, but into your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean is this, the law introduced 430 years later doesn't set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. 
For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on a promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. What then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions until, until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. A mediator, however, doesn't represent just one party, but God is one. Is the, le- is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But the Scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus, might be given to those who believe. Before this faith came, so notice this, before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until, until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. Long readings, aren't they? Quite technical, whole lot of extra stuff in there. And yet, Paul is making something pretty clear, I think. The law of the Old Testament was very much for one people, at one time, in one place, with one purpose. Now, it doesn't answer the whole question that we began with, does it? What is the significance of the Old Testament law for Christians today? It doesn't tell us, it doesn't tease out for us. How is it that I, as a modern Christian, am supposed to still learn moral lessons? I mean, the Old Testament law is still part of the Word of God to me today. God still speaks today in His whole Word. So, how am I supposed to take, well, not just the Old Testament law, but Old Testament wisdom? How am I supposed to use all of that in my figuring out the moral Christian life? Now, it doesn't answer all of those questions, does it? Those who are going to have to be saved for another time, because it is still God's Word for us and we do still learn moral lessons from it. But the people of Israel in the Old Testament, for up until the time of Christ, were under the law. But you, Christian, today, are you to live under its supervision? Are you to live under the law of Israel? I don't believe so. Rather, verse 26, you are all sons of of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you were baptised into Christ and have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. On what grounds, Christian, are you sure? On what grounds do you know? On what grounds can you call out to your God and Father in heaven as the Dad in heaven, perfect beyond your earthly Dad, known and loved by Him forever and ever, secure in His arms? When you are feeling low, yes, even then. When you're feeling stupid, yes, even then. When you have stuffed up for all to see, yes, even then. When you are angry, even angry at God. When you are friendless or frantic, when you are no longer proud of yourself, when everyone seems to be having such a better time of life than you are. It isn't how well you have kept the law 
because, brothers and sisters, you're not under the law. Is your faith in Jesus? Can you call on God as your Father because you know yourself a son in Christ? And I say son, of course, son or daughter in the Son, Jesus Christ. Have you got his spirit in your life? Are you part of the people of God, blessed by God, loved by God, forever in him, whom Christ came to save by becoming a curse for us? To be loved but not known It's comforting, but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved, it is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness and fortifies us for any difficulty that life can throw at us. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus and because you are sons, chapter 4, verse 6, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son, and since you're a son, God has made you also an heir. How about we pray? Father, Your Word is indeed rich to us rich in so many ways and full of so much information and yet it is a good word to us that speaks straight to our hearts. Lord God, may we know our place in the Lord Jesus by faith. May may we know our place in the people of God, secure and loved and known forever, entirely because of Christ. And yes, Lord, may we learn with diligence to live a life that pleases you by the power of your spirit. But may we rest all of our confidence, may we derive all of our assurance from the Lord Jesus and not from ourselves, not from our own performance, our own doing, our own observance, even of your good law. May we know ourselves to live in the time of and under the loving lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray it for his sake. Amen.